Okay, what do y'all want to do? Congregational government. What do y'all want to do? Um, we got eight chapters, seven chapters, six chapters, five chapters. Depends on what, you know, how much time do we want to spend on this? Do we want to read every verse of the next seven more chapters? Or, I don't um, think so. No, no. Let's, let's draw out the blueprints of the boards. All right, well, if we draw out the blueprints, one of the things that you're going to find is that we have almost no height dimensions. There's three stories at least, right? Three stories. Right. But we don't get any numbers. No. Right. We only get numbers with regard to the bottom. We know nothing of the roof. No. We have no idea what it looks like. It would be almost impossible to do you a three-dimensional drawing. Roof. What? Oh, mentioned that wooden roof over the chambers and the temple. Yeah, where? Sounds like it's going like this over the chambers on the side. Yeah. Would you say, Dave? Mm-hmm. Oh. Of chapter 40? Yes, 41. Okay. So what do you all want to read tonight? How much more time are we going to devote to this? I found another podcaster, right? This is a different podcast guy. Um, if some of y'all are interested. What? Is he better? He's much better. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and he's dead. Um, it was really um, kind of providential. Someone listens to us, and um, he sent it to me last week. Um, You need to check out this podcast. So he listens on Summer I check out this podcast. And um, I opened up the podcast. It's like 450 or maybe maybe like 489 or something, a lot of, you know, podcasts. And the first one that popped up was so helpful for me for Sunday. For Sunday, which, you know, it wasn't even the one that he was recommending. It was so helpful for last Sunday. Anyway, I started listening to him, and then I found out that he had, um, I was like, this guy's good, you know? I started listening to him. He had stage four pancre- pa- pan- pancreatic. pancreatic cancer, and um, the day I was up at ABC preaching chapel, he passed away. Um, but he leaves behind a legacy of uh, a lot of really good conversations, teaching. And so anyway, there's two chapters, uh, two podcasts on 40 through 48. It's called Naked Bible Podcast. There are two chapters on 40 through 48, part one and part two. So if you uh, want to listen to it, I found it to be really good. I'm just playing out excellent. It's about two hours long. Each one's about an hour. So um, Naked Bible Podcast, the word Ezekiel, 40 through 48, part one. It'll Google right up. Part two, it'll Google right up. It's also on Spotify. Um, so what did you learn from it that you can share? Okay. Um, he feels like his perspective is that there's not enough details to conclude that this is supposed to be built. And one of the things he brings up is the lack of three-dimensional heights to create the proportionalities that you need. That he feels like it was meant for Ezekiel to draw it out and for people to look down at it and see it, um, that it, it wasn't ever intended to be built. And um, that that was very intentional to pave the way for the New Testament language that talks about temple, like we being the temple, Christ being the temple, God dwelling amongst the church, and all that kind of language. And that his perspective is that the church that focuses on the literalness of the temple misses all the symbolic imagery that's supposed to move you into the New Testament. That's, that, that would be my 
two-minute summary of well, and that's interesting because you've always said from the very beginning that Ezekiel is like full of symbolism. So why would all of a sudden when you've been, you know, looking at symbolism for thirty-nine chapters, all of a sudden now we're going to switch into a literal temple? Yeah, and he doesn't. Um, you know, we've talked about this, so we don't need to belabor this point. But he, he really struggles with the idea of going back to physical sacrifices. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he says is that if you look at the furniture that's in the temple, or the lack thereof, for example, there's no Ark of the Covenant in the temple. There are no cherubims in the temple. There's no wash station at the temple. And will you agree? Yeah, Chris, were you? No, no mention of the brass lavender, right. the showbread. Right, all the things that you would expect to have in a fully functioning temple. And he says, one of the things he, he argues is, how can the priest do the sacrifices without the ability to wash their hands? But there is a, a couple of wash stations, not by the inner gates. Right, but he's talking about the large station that they use to wash themselves. In, in, like you so, yeah, these ones are for washing their hands. What do you mean? Michael H. But it'll pop right up, brother, with all the data I gave you. Okay. Okay, we need, we need to decide what we're going to read tonight, how much you guys want to get into, what we're going to do. Yeah, we touched on the beginning at 43 that we could go over there. Well, let's just read through 43. We can't go wrong by reading through the Bible. Right? Amen. Right. Oh, you show up 30 minutes late with your amen. Okay. Yeah. Preach it. Okay. Preach it. Well, who is this guy? Okay. Okay. All right, let's start with verse 1. If your name's Sean, then start reading. Right. Uh, 41? 43. Oh, exciting. First of all, we had a good study last week of the previous chapters. He led. Okay, Ezekiel 43, verse 1. Afterward... He brought me to the gate, the gate that faces towards the east. And behold, the glory of God, of the God of Israel, came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. The vision were the visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Chebar. <clears throat> and I fell on my face, and the glory of the Lord came into me into the temple by way of the gate which faces towards the east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Then I heard him speaking to me from the temple while a man stood beside me. Verse 7. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet. For I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. No more shall the house of the Israel defile my holy name. They nor the kings, nor their kings, by their harlotry, or with the carcasses of their of their kings on their high places. When they set the their thresholds by my thresholds and their doorposts by my doorposts, with a wall between them and me. They defile my holy name by their abominations which they committed. Therefore, I have consumed them in my anger. 
Now let them put their harlotry and their carcasses of their kings far away from me, and I will dwell in their in their midst forever. Son of man, dis- oh, uh-huh, that's good. Yep. David, we're in chapter forty-three of Ezekiel. We're in verse ten. Anybody else? Give him a break. Pick it up, please. Verse ten. Verse ten. As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and they shall measure the plan. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits, and its entrances, that is, its whole design. And make known to them, as well as all its statutes, and its whole design, and all its laws, and write it down in their sight, so that they may observe all its laws and all its statutes, and carry them out. Verse 12. This is the law of the temple. The whole territory on top of the mountain, all around, shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. 13. These are the measurements of the altar by cubits, cubit being a cubit and a hand breadth. Its face shall be one cubit high and one cubit broad with a rim of one span around its edge. And this shall be the height of the altar, from the base of the ground to the lower edge, two cubits, with a breadth of one cubit, and from the smaller ledge to the larger ledge, four cubits, with a breadth of one cubit. Fifteen. And the altar hearth, four cubits, and from the altar hearth projecting upward, four horns. The altar hearth shall be square, twelve cubits long by twelve broad. Seventeen. The ledge also shall be square, fourteen cubits by fourteen broad, with a rim around it half a cubit broad, and its base one cubit all around. The steps of the altar shall face east. Eighteen. And he said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the ordinances for the altar. On the day when it is erected for offering burnt offerings upon it, and for throwing blood against it, you shall give to the Levitical priests of the family of Zadok, who draw near to me to minister to me, declares the Lord God, a bull from the herd for a sin offering. And you shall take some of its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar and on the four corners of the ledge and upon the rim all around. Thus you shall purify the altar and make atonement for it. 21. You shall also take the bull of the sin offering, and it shall be burned in the appointed place belonging to the temple, outside the sacred area. And on the second day you shall offer a male bill without blemish for a sin offering. And the altar shall be purified as it was purified with the bull. 23. When you have finished purifying it, you shall offer a bull from the herd without blemish, and a ram from the flock without blemish. You shall present them before the Lord, and the priests shall, sh- shall sprinkle salt on them, and offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord. 25. For seven days you shall provide daily a male goat for a sin offering, also a bull from the herd, and a ram from the flock, without blemish, shall be provided. Seven days shall they make atonement for the altar and cleanse it, and so consecrate it. 27. And when they have completed these days, then from the eighth day onward, the priest shall offer on the altar your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, and I will accept you, declares the Lord. Forty-four, forty-five, forty-six, forty-seven, forty-eight. Number of chapters until we're done. Yeah. Do do what, Dave? I was waiting for somebody to yell bingo. Yeah. All right. What do you think? This commentator says says. In the design of the tabernacle, the altar of sacrifice is one of the less important pieces of furniture. It is made of bronze as it befits its place in the outer courtyard. 
whereas the objects in the holy place and the most holy place are made of gold. The tabernacle comprised two adjoining squares, a more important and restricted square to the west that housed the sacred tent itself, containing the Ark of the Covenant, its geometric center, center, and a less important square to the east containing the altar of sacrifice, the bronze waste, wash basin, and so on. In the construction of Solomon's temple, the design of the altar for sacrifice in the outer court is barely mentioned, not at all in Kings and only one verse in Chronicles. But for Ezekiel, the altar is the most important piece of furnishings in the temple, located at the geometric center of the entire temple complex and described in great detail. There's no Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place, no lampstand in the holy place, Indeed, no gold, silver, or bronze in any of the furnishings, for the splendor of this temple comes solely from the indwelling presence of the Lord's glory in the most holy place. The temple needs little else apart from a simple wooden table in the front of the most holy place before the Lord. Ezekiel 41:22. And the massive altar of sacrifice in the outer court where the purifying sacrifices are offered. All right, thoughts on that? Okay. I told you this was going to be a good one. Well, okay. All right, let me throw the conversation out there. If, in fact, this is the temple to be built in the Millennial Kingdom, what do you do with verse 7? What do you do with verse 7? Because there is a single word in that verse that's really problematic. What word is that? Forever. Forever. I mean, where does he, where does he dwell forever? Yeah. Exactly. The New Jerusalem comes down, and it's, I mean, Revelation is 22 is very clear. You can't get away from Revelation 22. What's it say? What's it say? What's the key thing in Revelation 22 that we should be familiar with? All right, then go there. Let's go there. Twenty-one or twenty-two, where it says temple. Twenty-one, where what verse? Twenty-two. Yep, at the very top of the page, right. And I, I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord, the God Almighty, and the Lamb. And then you go on down to, um, they will need no light in verse number five, for the Lord, their God, is their light, and they will reign forever. And ever. So how, how how should we reckon reconcile in chapter forty-three? He says, Son of man, this is the place of my throne, the place for the soles of my feet, where I will dwell amongst the Israel forever. The house of Israel and their kings will no longer. So how are we supposed to reconcile those two passages? 
Evan. Go ahead. They sound similar, but how can um, Ezekiel can't be in the millennial kingdom if if Revelation obviously is forever and ever and ever? So forever can't be thousand years. Yeah, or Ezekiel's not speaking to an actual temple. When he says temple here, that's just the way you how to describe whatever it was. Sure. Because it gets even harder when you get to chapter 47 and it starts talking about the river that comes out and quite matches the description of Revelation 22. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and read it. Because we care about the order of the chapter. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we can do whatever we want, right? Yes. Yeah. Chapter 47. What, what, what verse? Starting in 1. I bet you would just be outstanding in the King James. Why don't we start with Chris in the King James? <laughs> Thoroughly enjoying the old English. No, Jan? No. Oh, no. <laughs> Chris does it so well, though. Yeah. He does, but it's that's still one of them. All right, Evan, go. Uh, sorry. It's like one. One, 1 through 12. <laughs> uh, no, Chris, you got voted out. Sorry. Jan was shaking her head left and right, just like that. I'm going to go to a Methodist church. <laughs> <laughs> so you can have a female preacher there. Yeah. Or it's probably be trans, probably. <laughs> All right. The man brought me back to the entrance to the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshing, or the threshold of the temple toward the east, to the temple face east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east, and the water was trickling from the south side. As the man went eastward <coughs> with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits <coughs> and then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was, uh, was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in. A river that no one could cross. <clears throat> he asked me, Son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the banks of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, This water flows toward this eastern region and goes down in, into Araba, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the Dead Sea, the salty water will become fresh. <clears throat> Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows there will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh so where the river flows everything will live fishermen will stand along the shore from En Gedi to En Eglon there will be places for spreading nests the fish will be of many kinds like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea but the swamps and marshes will not become fresh they will be left for salt fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river their leaves will not wither nor will their fruit fail every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. All right, so let's go to Revelation. <coughs> really, 22, 1 through 5. All right, Chris, please read that. I could enjoy it even if Jake can't. Right. Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Revelation 22, 1 through 5. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, 
and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. <clears throat> and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Okay. <clears throat> what do you see as comparisons? Trees, water, fruit, fruit. Where? Yeah. Yeah. fruit. The only thing is there's a seed, but not in Particular mention of months. What's one of the arguments against this? When you're looking at 47 compared to Revelation, what's one of the arguments against it? All right, I'll tell you one of them. Well, we're not going to be fishing in, in the new earth. I feel like that argument, like that's operating on the assumption that no work is done. I really don't see where that argument, how that argument can stand. Because if we assume it's similar to like, somewhat even restored, I mean, Adam was tending to the garden there. Fishing doesn't include the death of the fish, so maybe that would be more death. I mean, I'm not arguing for this, but I'm just saying maybe they're saying, like, there's not going to be death. Catch and release? <laughs> Fishing for fun? <laughs> I think that we've created um, a lot of preconceived notions concerning heaven that aren't supported by Scripture. And that those preconceived notions superimpose how we see Scripture and interpret it. So then when we see anything that looks like it couldn't be in heaven, that creates the necessity of a millennial kingdom where these things get fulfilled. I'm, I'm saying it's built on a false premise. Because why would we not be able to enjoy these things? You know, is, is heaven floating around on clouds, singing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me 24 hours a day, seven days a week? I think not. Are you referring to heaven, heaven, or do you have a new earth? New earth. Well, when I say heaven, normally people think of the eternal state. That's right. what they think of. Right. And really, what we need to be thinking about is the intermediate state, like I talked about Sunday, and then the eternal state. Because the intermediate state, you don't even have anybody. Right? In the intermediate state, you're waiting for your glorified body, spiritual body, the body that, that Christ is the first fruits. And we find Christ in that body eating fish yeah. with the disciples during the 40 days. Yeah. I mean, he's grilling fish with them. What'd you catch? Yeah. And they eat. And he says, I won't eat of this again until I eat it with you in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Right. Not, not to mention, I mean, if you take the marriage piece of the bride of the church Christ, I would say there should literally be food there. I'm fully expecting food to be there. I can't imagine why there wouldn't be. I mean, God created us to enjoy His creation. So if, if, if we're going to enjoy His creation for six or seven or 8,000 or 10,000 years of human history, but then we don't enjoy His creation for eternity? I mean, that's pretty ridiculous, isn't it? You know, one of the things is, is you go back to Genesis. You go back to the garden. And you know, God created man 
to live in a physical environment in Eden. Um, so, you know, and that's that, pre-sin, pre-fall. That's right, pre-fall. And so, you know, why wouldn't the heaven, you know, as the, as Jerusalem, the new heaven comes down and res, he resides with us again on earth. God resided with Adam in the garden. Okay, you sort of see that same sort of symbolism. And I, I was, I would take it another step in Revelation 22 and go to verse 6. And I don't know if this really ties out or not, but it says, The angel said to me, and he's just he's just gone through verse 1 and, and 5. Mm-hmm. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So you're making the connection to the prophet of Ezekiel, in other well, words, or all those. I think it could be all prophets. I mean, he's not sure. just talking to John. I mean, he's saying this to John, but mm-hmm. he's talking about prophets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I would say that, well, again, like you started mentioning earlier, that uh, in Ezekiel 47, verse 10, yeah, it does say a great seed, and then when you get to Revelation 21, one it says, and there was no more sea. Yeah, but that like I talked about that in Revelation study. That sea is not the sea that we're talking about. That sea is symbolic for the chaos of the Gentile world. Mm-hmm. Okay, but to suggest that there is no sea in the new heaven and new earth is absurd. You know, and then that's normally a, a, in other words, we're going to have the new earth is just going to be nothing but a landmass. Mm-hmm. You know, you, that means there's no ponds, there's no lakes, there's nothing, right? And, and that I think that this because if you look earlier in Revelation you'll see that coming out of the sea are the beasts and the monsters and all that's evil is what comes out of that sea mm. so then if you carry that symbology over then what he's saying is all that chaos that's associated with the dragons and the beasts coming out of the sea has been eliminated mm-hmm. um, so I, I just I, 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 yeah. what's but, that? that's something I know the same too Oh, so I got a validation from your notes? <laughs> no, I did not. But no, well, that makes me happy because I wanted to check that out when we get there. I, want to, I still want to swim. <laughs> but if, if we look at, see, that's I think that's so. I think he was disappointed if there wasn't. I was. I didn't want to say I was. I mean, when we think about all that God has created that we enjoy, right? To suggest that all of that is going to be removed is ludicrous. Won't we enjoy even more in a world that isn't fallen? That's what I always thought. That's why when I saw that part, it really bummed me up. So I always assume that if, if this is what we're living in now, and it's pretty awesome in my, in my mind, like the way it was created and everything, you go to the mountains, it's beautiful, you go to the ocean, it's beautiful. I don't imagine all of a sudden we're on clouds just sitting around. I mean, I think that whatever heaven looks like is going to be even more beautiful. You know, and even, it's awesome. See, I, I think that, that it'll be recognizable to us. Yeah. I think that there'll be correlations. I don't think that it's like 10 trillion miles away in an inconceivable way and we have no recollection of anything. I, I just Because I believe that the land promises that are promised to Abraham are fulfilled in the new heaven and new earth. Yeah. That, that, right, that we don't have to have a millennial kingdom in order to fulfill because God fulfills them in the new heaven and new earth. So therefore, I don't I don't think that it's like far, far away. I think it's this earth right here 
made new. Mm-hmm. And, and, and why wouldn't it be that? I mean, why wouldn't he take us back to the pre-fall world that Adam screwed up? Mm-hmm. Um, and then Christ rules it. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on verse 11? Oh, which chapter? I'm sorry, 47. Verse 11. About the swamps and marshes. Alligators that got pissed really good. No, but it says that they will not be healed and they'll be covered with salt. Yep, so is that the contrast that we see for um, in Revelation? Let's see. Um, how about verse 15, Jessica, in Revelation 22? Come on, let's go on. Let's get some talking going on. I mean, I think that would make sense because the um, swamps and marshes and then when brackish, nothing really alive. There's, there's nothing there. Nothing can live in that. So I think that makes sense that the people left outside, there's, a, there's some sort of delineation <laughs> between the, um, like the sea and then the actual land. Like there's a separation there. I think that yeah, exactly what you're saying. One thing I was thinking about is the um, in Ezekiel uh, 47, three talking about that are just the difference between the river, the, the like, river, uh, and because it says he couldn't pass through the water there, but then in uh, Revelation 22, it talks about how things are on both sides of the river, both sides of the river, but in Ezekiel 47, it only talks about one side of the river. So, I, I don't know what that is. That's interesting. No, because in verse 7, it says, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on one oh, side and that. on the other. Yeah, I missed that. How about the symbolic imagery of verse 8? This water flows out of the eastern region, goes down. When it enters the sea, the sea of foul water, the water of the sea becomes fresh. I mean, isn't that like beautiful symbology of God making things new? Right. I mean, continue down there. He says, every kind of living creature, the swarms will live wherever the river flows, and there will be a huge number of fish because this water goes there. Since the water become fresh, there will be life everywhere the river goes. I mean, surely we all in this room see the incredible symbology of that description. I mean, it's just incredibly symbolic. Especially when Jesus says, that's me. Come drink of me. Did anyone do any research on who this prince is? This prince here in the in the passages that is not the Lord and, and seems to be rearing its. You know. Did anyone do any work on that? What verse? Uh, I'm trying to find it. 
44, it has the prince himself will sit in the gate and eat a meal before the Lord. He is to enter by the way, the portico of the gate, and go out the same way. Then the man brought me by the way, the north. There's another part where the prince has to have a sin offering for himself. Sure, why not? Get us started. Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces toward the east, but it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall be shut, it shall not be opened, and no man shall enter by it, because the Lord God of Israel has entered by it, therefore it shall be shut. As for the prince, because he is the prince, he may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gateway and go out the same way. Also he brought me by the way of the north gate to the front of the Lord. So I looked and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, and I fell on my face. And the Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well, see with your eyes, and hear with your ears. All that I say to you concerning all the ordinances of the house of the Lord and all its laws. Mark well who may enter the house, and all who go out from the sanctuary. Now say to the rebellious to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, let us have no more of all your abominations. And you brought in foreigners, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, to be in the sanctuary to defile it, my house, and when you offered my food, the fat and the blood, then they broke my covenant because of all your abominations. And you have not kept charge of my holy things, but you have set others to keep charge of my sanctuary for you. Thus says the Lord God, No foreigner, uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh, shall enter my sanctuary, including any foreigner who is among the children of Israel. So how about verse number 9? What kind of language is that? Mm-hmm. What'd you say? Because I mean, like, I'm cool with the uncircumcised and hard part, but the uncircumcised and flesh typically is in reference to Gentiles. Right, but what, what, what Jew uses the phrases uncircumcised and hard? It's in Deuteronomy. Sure, yes, it's in there. Right, but they skipped over it, seems like, because what was their focus on? Physical circumcision, right? I'm not suggesting that. I'm suggesting it's a foreshadowing of what? The New Testament, the the legitimate circumcision of the heart, and he's making a clear distinction between the saved and the unsaved here, but but not in the language of the normal Jew, because in the language of the normal Jew, a, a saved person is a son of Abraham, and he says, "You are your father, the devil. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning, and you are the same." This is the Lord speaking. Right, telling them that he's drawing the distinction that he's drawing here is not the circumcision of the flesh, but the circumcision of the heart. No foreigner, uncircumcised in heart and flesh, may enter uh, my sanctuary. Not even a foreigner who is among the Israelites. So, who would a foreigner be in this context? I guess not Yeah, absolutely, an unbeliever. So then, why does it conclude that uncircumcised in flesh? That's a language that they would have been very familiar with, I think. I like I, I see it when I see it. It's like <clears throat> like you just change foreigner to like no unbeliever uh, who is a Gentile or a Jew shall enter my sanctuary, including a foreigner who's moved Israel. 
Say to the rebellious people in verse number six, this is what the Lord God says, I have had enough of all your detestable practices, house of Israel, when you brought in foreigners, uncircumcised in both heart and flesh, to occupy my sanctuary. You defiled my temple while you were offered my food, the fat and the blood. You broke my covenant by all your detestable practices. You have not kept charge of my holy things, but have appointed others to keep charge of my sanctuary for you. I mean, this is an incredible rebuke to who? To the people of that day. To the people of that day. So how do we how do we systematically take application to the people of that day and when it comes to prophecies like this and then pick up the rest of it and move it forward and say it's got to be built in a millennial kingdom? Uh, Earlier we read uh, last week where um, the language we read in 43, not last week, 43. And as for you, son of man, in verse number 10 of chapter 43, and as for you, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel so that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. Let them measure its pattern and they will be ashamed of all that they have done. Reveal the design of the temple to them. Its layouts with exits and entrances, its complete design with all its statutes, design, specifications, and laws. Write it down in their sight so that they may observe its complete design and all its statutes and may carry them out. Does anyone have something different on the end of verse 11? Does anyone have any language in their text that says build it? It is interesting. Like it's, it's the description of it that's supposed to bring them to shame. Yes. Yep. They're supposed to see it. They're supposed to hear about it. They're supposed to be amazed by it. They're supposed to be reminded of that. Because for them, this is the central place of everything. Where does atonement take place? In the temple. And then, so how, how do we go from an entire system of theology in which Christ in the cross is central to everything about who we are. I mean, the cross is central to the Christian faith. The, nothing is more central than the death of Christ. Right. It is the absolute... John Stott's book uh, uh, on the cross is just like this bedrock of emphasis on the importance of the cross. You know, every time you see a Catholic do this, and I know we Baptists were like, what is that nonsense? You know what they're doing, right? They're making the sign of the cross. When the priest comes up and makes them a sign, of the, that's the centrality of the cross. You know, graves have crosses on them. Churches have crosses. Crosses everywhere you go. It's the central piece of the New Testament, right? So how do you walk away from that and go back to a temple? Where sacrifices happen in the temple, and that becomes a new central point of atonement. Sense. You have a real hard time with that, don't you, William? Yeah, I do. I do have a real hard time with that. Right. Because of Jesus and the veil of the temple and the red plain, uh, once and for all, it's forever. So we, you don't need to go back to the temple. It's done away with. So it doesn't make sense. If we go back to the temple, why? Yes, yeah. exactly. Because he suffered a horrible crucifixion. It destroys the other people. Well, yeah. That's a slap in his face in my mind. But then there was in this house to have some like purpose of meaning. 
Yeah, and I would say the, the primary argument is the fact that they're supposed to repent. That the prophet Ezekiel is speaking to them and their need to see something greater, something more than Solomon's temple. Something larger than that. Right. To anticipate. And if you look at all, which is podcast Ezekiel 40 through 48, part number two, he puts a lot of focus on the temple language in the New Testament. Like, for example, stones. Who are the stones? We are. We are. We are the stones of the temple. We are the living stones. He's the cornerstone, and we're built on him. Right? right? That, that's temple language. That's New Testament temple language. And you, you know, you think about 1 John. I mean, John 1, and we're going to have that beautiful time to get into it real soon, where he dwells among us. And everyone in this room knows that that word is tabernacle. That's the literal Greek word. It should be rendered, he tabernacles among us. And then he tabernacles in us. And then we become the tabernacle. We're the walking, talking, breathing tabernacle. So doesn't it seem odd to do that for 2,000, 2,500, 3,000 years of church history, the validation of the mission of Christ and the building of the church, and then to go, stop, now we're going back. Because that's what you have to say. You just literally have to skip over all that and go back. Where did you stop reading, Jessica? <clears throat> this is what the Lord God says. No foreigner uncircumcised in heart and flesh may enter my sanctuary. Not even a foreigner who is among the Israelites. Surely the, Le- the Levites who wandered away from me when Israel went astray and who strayed from me after their idols will bear the consequences of their iniquity. Yet they will occupy my sanctuary serving as guards at the temple gates and ministering at the temple. They will slaughter the burnt offerings, other sacrifices for the people, and they will stand before them to serve them. Because they ministered to the house of Israel before their idols and became a simple stumbling block to them. Therefore I swore an oath against them. This is the declaration of the Lord God, that they would bear the consequences of their iniquity. They must not approach me to serve me as priests or come near me any of my holy things or my most holy things they will bear their disgrace and consequences of detestable acts they committed yet I will make them responsible for the duties of the temple for all that its work and everything done in it okay thoughts on that sounds like he's utterly disgusted with it and yet they're going to continue doing it someone see anything different You know, when they came back from exile, you know, they promised that they were going to be good again, and then... Yeah, it was a disaster. When they came back from exile, though, did it? So wasn't it just Judah and Benjamin that actually returned and everyone else was left in... No, you're not getting confused. The other ten tribes are so integrated into the Syrians that it's difficult to even identify who is, in fact, of any given tribe. Were they doing sacrifices when they were staying on? Yeah, the tribe of Judah was. Oh, so Judah didn't even know they weren't 
Well, no, the, the, the Levites said that they would hold, they held their lineage, but they were part of that entity. Tracking what I mean by that? Right. But the Levitical priesthood descended from Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the Israelites went astray from me, will approach me to serve me. They will stand before me to offer me fat and blood. Verse 16. They are the ones who enter my sanctuary and approach my table to serve me. They will keep my mandate. When they enter the gate of the inner courts, they are to wear linen garments. They must not have on them anything made of wool when they minister at the gates in the inner court within. They are to wear linen turbans on their heads and linen undergarments around their waist. They are not, I wonder if that's what the Mormons do. They are not to put on anything that makes them sweat before they go out into the outer courts to the people. They must take off their clothes that they have been ministering in, leave them in the holy chambers, dress in other clothes so they do not transmit holiness to the people through their clothes. So if that applies to the millennial kingdom, how in the world do you reconcile the application of Christ's righteousness by faith? In other words, are we just totally repudiating everything from the Christian understanding of the New Testament? And we're going back to a point where the clothes you wear matter when it comes to the transmission of sin? Or is this symbolism to communicate how serious God is about separating ourselves from sin? These are, like all of these laws that he reiterates for the next few chapters, is any of it new or is all pretty much it's somewhere in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and whatnot? Like it's all... I think there's there's elements of it. That are new or they are? Yes, that are both. Because I've listened to arguments about the fact that Orthodox Jews struggle with Ezekiel because of how it doesn't line up with the Torah. Right. So if you're a Sadducee and you only believe in the Torah, what do you do with this? I was reading one of the Thomas papers um, yeah. and I just gave it, but it said something about um, Jew, Jews aren't, Jewish men aren't allowed to read these um, nine chapters until they're 30 years old. I've heard, I've heard that too. Yeah, because they're too complicated. They're too hard to understand. understand. No, I'm not 30. You're not? Drew, how old are you? 29. Too young. Quinn, how old are you? 28. Man. 26. Look at all these young people. You're too old to understand. Yeah, you're too old to understand. I'm right there. Right. All right, somebody else start reading verse 20, please. They must not shave their heads or let their hair grow long, but they are to keep the hair on their heads trimmed. No priest is to drink wine when he enters the inner court. They must not marry widows or divorce women. They may only marry virgins of Israelite descent or widows of priests. They are to teach my people the difference between the holy and the common and show them how to distinguish between the unclean and the clean. In any dispute, the priests are to serve as judges and decide it according to my ordinances. They are to keep my laws and my decrees for all my appointed festivals, and they are to keep my status holy. A priest must not defile himself by going near a dead person. However, if the dead person was his father or mother, son or daughter, brother or unmarried sister, then he may defile himself. After he is cleansed, he must wait seven days. On the day he goes into the inner court of the sanctuary to minister in the sanctuary, he is to offer a sin offering for himself, declares the sovereign Lord. I am to be the only inheritance the priests have. 
You are to give them no possessions in Israel. I will be their possession. They will eat the grain offerings, the sin offerings, and the guilt offerings, and everything in Israel devoted to the Lord will belong to them. The best of all the first fruits and all of your special gifts will belong to the priests. You are to give them the first portion of your ground meal so that a blessing may rest in your on your household. The priest must not eat anything, whether bird or animal, found dead or torn by wild animals. Hey, and we're going to do that for a thousand years. In verse 25, there's no death in a thousand years either. Where? Verse 25 is, uh, is um, yeah, don't touch the, any dead bodies. Not defile himself by touching it or going near a dead person. David, are you enjoying this Bible study? You're thinking I should have went to another one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, where are we going next? Have we decided where we're going next? Have <laughs> we picked a new book? Because we're getting closer to the end. Jude. Jude. Probably. Judges. No, it does Jude recently. I, this is Jude. I like the Judges. Judges. This is kind of an opposite effect for me than I think that we're portraying here, which is like that it's a mystery to me some way. And it makes me want to press into the Lord even more. It makes me want to read more. It makes me want to understand it more as opposed to, like, discouraging me. I mean, that's just me, though. I'm not saying I'm discouraged. I'm not discouraged. I would say that I'm discouraged. I'm checking. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just, like, banging your heads together. (laughs) It's okay. I'm just ready to move on. Because I... what else are we supposed to get out of this? Did you have any thoughts on the prince? I know you asked him what No, I don't have any thoughts on the prince. That's one um, I think if you're talking about, like, what are we supposed to get out of this, yep. um, I think the main thing, I think we mentioned it a couple weeks back, is that this message was in some ways, like, hope for the Israelites. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we're taking away from it is hope for what God has in store for us. So it might not, this might not be like literal what we're going to experience, but we understand through revelation and through, you know, what we understand through Christ's sacrifice for us that we have hope in what's to come. Um, and I think that's what this message was for the Israelites. And I think that's what it can be for us today. And a lot of it does like correlate to Christ. Like he is our high priest. So this whole chapter about priests, he's, um, like all the the festivals, the, yeah, the festivals, the feasts, or whatever, they all point to Christ, either first coming or second coming, right? Um, like the Passover and stuff, and then like I don't know, I just I feel like a lot of it because he's our temple, he's also the fulfillment of all of the law, and this is a lot of this is reminiscing on the details of the law. Yep. So in a way, it's also symbolic. Yeah, this conclusion for chapter is only one paragraph. I think it's excellent. He says, Ezekiel 43, 1-16 is absolutely critical to understanding the significance of Ezekiel's entire temple vision. It is not a blueprint for a future building. It is a mirror for his contemporaries to acknowledge their own sins, their shame, and to anticipate a different future in which through the transforming power of God's Spirit, going back to chapter 36, remember those dead bones, the people will be cleansed and sanctified. The Apostle Paul uses the metaphor of clothing, put on, put off, in Ephesians, 
Ezekiel uses the metaphor of architecture. In effect, he says, compare this very different design of the temple to the earlier ones God commanded. Learn from it. Confess your former sins and to aspire to a different future that God has prepared for his people. It's a pretty good paragraph. As to kind of like a transitional idea here. How about something forward um, in the New Testament? Yes, they want to call it a person. In the New Testament? Yeah. yeah. What a thought. <laughs> something that would compete with Mike's group. You know, we can start saying, hey man, look at this. We've got this good book here. Ephesians is a good book. Okay, what do y'all think? Come on, let's let's make a decision because we're only a week or two away. Jeremiah. Paul says, "Let the women be silent in the church." Right? Okay. I don't want to do. We've done Daniel. We've done Ezekiel. The last thing I want to do is. I would do Isaiah. I would do Isaiah because Isaiah is amazing. Isaiah. Chris, you okay with Isaiah? Yeah. Okay with Isaiah? Well, it's warm in here. Chris, hit see what the AC is on. How do y'all feel about Isaiah? Yeah, it doesn't matter to me which book you take because sitting here, I've been going through it, it makes it seem like I haven't read it before. Yep. All right, we're going to do Isaiah. Yes. But we're not done with Ezekiel, right? Oh, we got to do some more in Ezekiel, right? Right. We're kind of reinforcing the Catholic doctrine of purgatory here as we just slug away in uh, Ezekiel one more week, hoping to be delivered into uh, something more. Would somebody pray us out, please? You know? All right, so where are we going to read next week? Because next week is our last week in Ezekiel. We're going to get it all done. And then we can go to Isaiah. Maybe just do 48. Yeah. Right. I, think, I think what we should do, honestly, is do 48, but we should have a power. I'm Eat. so okay. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we can review. We are. Let me just preach the line again. I brief a review of Somebody give me a knife. She said power. Give him a spear to fall off. Let's start back there again. Really? I Quinn, are you going to be here next week? I should be. Okay, are you going to be able to bring a dessert? Do you want me to bring a cheesecake? I want a yeah, good one. I don't want them artificial and stuff. Like that. Make I, can, it, I can make a cheesecake. Yeah. Oh, what are you going to bring, Evan? I will be a squad by fire. What a sorry excuse. Wow. Yeah. Bring some cherry blueberry cobblers. Oh, man. This class has not done any potluck. Yep. Okay, so we're having a potluck next week. Okay, Jan's going to send out some instructions so that we know how to prepare for it. Too bad y'all aren't going to be here. Yep. Y'all going to be here with us on Sunday or are you going back? Okay. That's too bad.
So they should have a little better place. Big outside. I got an office down here, so I'm trying to get back as much as possible. You have an office down here? Mm-hmm. Now they've got a granddaughter. They've got recent. Oh, yeah, they had children already, so now I didn't see them before. That's true. Right. You got a great son, though. I hope you all realize that. How many children have parents have children in church on Wednesday night? And that puts it in an extreme minority. And he doesn't just come when y'all are here. He comes on other times. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Julia's procedure is tomorrow, so please pray for her that it'll be excellent. And then eyes the next day. So back to back. So lift Julia up to the Lord on both days. David, is a, um, is that off yet? Turn that thing off. We're done. <laughs>